Welcome to episode 138. Today, Dr. Ayanar Cooper will talk about her book, And Justice for ELs. Welcome to the Teaching Multilingual Learners podcast. This podcast celebrates teachers who answer the calling to serve multilingual students and their families. Your beautiful smile, your beautiful life are waiting for you to shine bright. It's never too early or late to start to rise up and shine. Your beautiful smile, your beautiful life are waiting for you to shine bright. It's never too early or late to start to rise up and shine. If you teach students, you are a school leader. Though Dr. Cooper's book is for school leaders at the district level, every chapter provides actions we can take as instructional leaders to control what we can inside our four walls while we sit next to students. You will leave this podcast feeling more inspired to move the work forward because you too or a school leader by simply being a teacher. Now, on to today's podcast. I am so honored and excited to have Dr. Ayana Cooper on the podcast. She has authored And Justice for ELs, A Leader's Guide to Creating and Sustaining Equitable Schools. Dr. Anna Cooper, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. I'm particularly excited to have you in the on the podcast because as a minoritized person, I am so excited to see another minoritized person advocating for ELs. Right? And in particular, there are not a lot of African Americans in our field, right? There are lots of Latinos and Latinas, right? The Latinx. There are a lot of uh, Caucasian teachers, but there are not a lot of African American advocates. And there are teachers who love our kids, but I think of you as leading the torch for this community. Do you want to talk about that at all? Sure, I'd love to talk about that. And, and you're right, there are uh, lots of uh, people of color who are serving in uh, the capacity of advocates for linguistic diversity, multilingualism, uh, biliteracy, bilingualism. Um, but there are a lot of um, Black and African-American educators who are doing the work. Unfortunately, there are very few of us who are afforded the opportunities or who are able to create spaces to share their work. And so I view the work that I do as um, yes, for students and families, but also for teachers uh, that look like me or somehow relate to me uh, with them being really in the field, experienced professionals um, that have been doing the work for a very, very long time, but have not been afforded opportunities to share their work across various contexts, meaning publications, podcasts, presentations, um, all of it, all of it. So I'd like to see more opportunities created for sure. Well, we started before we on, were on the podcast, we kind of talked and you were saying we're moving the work forward. And I would say you are one of the people 
who are moving <laughs> the work forward. So let's start off with talking about uh, sharing a story or from your consulting experience that has really shaped your practice to this day. Sure, I'm actually gonna go, go back a little further before I became a consultant. And this was from um, my teaching, my teaching career. I'm a general ed elementary teacher by trade. Um, and I had spent a couple of years teaching fourth grade in a public school just outside of Atlanta. And I just had that class. Can anyone relate to having that class? Oh, yes. It was a very, yes, you know, that class, like there's just some groups of students that you just, they're just etched in your memory. And I remember going to the principal as clear as it happened yesterday. And I, I remember saying to her, I've had a really, really challenging class. Is there anything else I could do next year? Anything at all besides teach fourth grade? I remember standing in her office and she listened to my request and she said, why, yes, we will be uh, offering pre-kindergarten next year at the school. It's going to be part of public school and it'll be based on a lottery. Families will sign up and 20 lucky families will be able to send their children here for pre-kindergarten. Would you be interested in teaching pre-kindergarten? And I thought three things before accepting that assignment. Number one, no more homework. Because I was that fourth grade teacher. I had that little cart and I'd roll it out to my car and I'd say, oh, I have to grade all this homework. And I'd put it in the trunk of my car, right? I would not grade anything. I'd lug it back in the building on Monday and go, oh, I have all this work to do. Okay, so I thought, okay, number one, they don't really have homework in pre-K. Like, I don't really have to be grading anything. So I thought, okay, that's a yes. The second yes was that I would have a full-time paraprofessional with me because in fourth grade, I was with, you know, 28 big fourth graders by myself all day. And I thought, wow, I'll have someone in the class. That person can stay in the class. I can go to the teacher's lounge, make a phone call, use a vending machine, because this was a time when you didn't have a cell phone. You had to go to the teacher's lounge, make a phone call, use the vending. I thought, that'll be great. I can leave and go to the vending machine because somebody else will stay in the class. And the third thing I thought, can you guess the third yes? No, I'm clueless. Yeah. <laughs> It was nap time. It was nap time. I said, oh my gosh, the students have to sleep or sit on their mats for an entire hour and not talk to me. This is the best job ever. So I accepted a position teaching pre-kindergarten with the hopes of just disconnecting from, from work because I just felt like that's what I needed at that time. Well, I had the best summer. I packed up all my fourth grade stuff. I was so excited about I'm, I'm going to teach pre-kindergarten. It's going to be the best. And then we had open house. So the 20 lucky families came to open house the beginning of the school year. They were the ones who got a spot in the class. And as they were signing in, I remember looking at how they were signing in their surnames. And it was they were, they were Latino surnames, Gutierrez, Suarez, Jimenez, Cruz. And I said, wait a minute, all of these students 
these students, they're going to be learning English. No, 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 no. This is a regular pre-K program. I, I signed up to teach English pre-K, and it doesn't look like that's who got a spot in my class. I went back to the principal with the list, showing her the list. I said, so, and I was talking fast because this was during the, I said, so remember when I said that I want to do something different and then you said I could do something different. I said I would do something different and then it was going to be pre-K. I was so excited. Well, guess what? The students are here. They don't speak English. That's not what I want to do. Did not sign up for that. We have a problem. And the principal looked at me very calmly and she said, that's what you agreed to do and you will do it and you will be fine. 18 out of those 20 students did not speak English as their home language. 18 out of the 20. I had one child who was bilingual, who served as my assistant teacher for the entire year. And I had multiple languages represented. I had little, I had children that spoke Russian. I had children that spoke Arabic. I had a little girl who spoke a West African dialect. I had English, two English speakers, one was bilingual, and then the rest were Spanish speakers. So that assignment literally changed the trajectory of my career. I fell back in love with teaching. I taught my heart out. I did everything I thought I should do based off of like Growing up watching Romper Room in Sesame Street, I had no real early learning training, but I sang a lot of songs. I used a lot of movement. I used a lot of props. I felt like I was just over teaching, but I, I got to see second language acquisition happen in front of me. And that's where the love of teaching came back because they, they weren't just learning English. I had students that were bilingual and this was not a dual language or bilingual program. It was just regular pre-K. But the students made it what they needed, which was which was fantastic. So by the time they came, but the, they came into pre-kindergarten with their with their mother tongue, and they left bilingual. And so that that is how I knew whatever this thing was, I wanted to do it. I wanted to do it because it was just a phenomenal. It was it was the the joining of of language and culture together in school. And, and my undergraduate, my undergraduate degree is in sociology. So I was already kind of coming at the, you know, at being an educator from a very humanistic perspective and people groups and how people, you know, create communities and all of that. So anyway, that was, that was the impetus for my, <laughs> my career choice of becoming a, a, an English language advocate. Uh, and it's just been phenomenal. And to this day, I'm looking for that student because I want to give him a preliminary teaching license. He, he taught everything that I needed him to teach to the students in Spanish because he was the only one at the time, especially in the beginning, who could speak to the students. So, you know, wash your hands, line up, sit down, right? Don't hit your friends, all that school language. Thank goodness for him. You know, they... So you, your principal had you at nap time, but you showed up and you're like, oh wait, I didn't, no, no, no. I didn't ask for all of this. No. But yet the universe sometimes gives us what we need. Yes. Form of what we don't want. Absolutely, isn't that amazing? And I tell that story like it was yesterday because I remember the principal's face. 
I remember like, please give me anything to do. And then when she gave me something to do, I'm like, but not that. Right. And then I ended up, you know what I mean? So, so years later to think that's how it starts. And so I guess, you know, the, the, the short version of that story to any listeners would be, you know, don't be afraid to embrace change. Don't be afraid to accept assignments that, you know, maybe that weren't your first, second, third or choice at all. There is a learning experience there and that is for you. And I'm so glad I didn't miss out on that. Um, Hafiz says, uh, what you're searching for is searching for you, right? You, you didn't really realize you were searching for that, Mm-mm. right? Mm-mm. But this was searching for you so that you can now do the work that you're doing so that you could move Correct. the work forward. You know, those students were the ones that really helped you see a different way. Absolutely. Right? Absolutely. Yeah. Do you want to talk yeah. about that? Like, what was your experience? Like, what did they teach you? How did you survive that first year? Oh, goodness. I had a phenomenal uh, uh paraprofessional. Um, she was several years older than me, more seasoned. Um, and so I was able to rely on her. She had more of an early learning background. So, you know, we could kind of, you know, play off of each other's strengths. I was coming from fourth grade, which was like very high, strong, have to, you know, behavior management and all of that. And that's not necessarily what they needed coming in to school, especially that it was part of the public school, right? So, you know, kindergartners are cute. Yeah. But like pre-Kers are cute. I mean, we had like, they were just adorable. And so although they were the cutest things in the building, right, the expectations were very high. And I remember feeling the pressure from the kindergarten team um, and them also knowing that I had the majority of my students did not speak English as their first language. I had this pressure uh, for performance. I have a pressure for academic achievement. And um, they would remind me, you know, subtly, but still very firmly that, um, so, so for example, like, you know, we're reading in kindergarten now, like that's a first grade, but we're reading now. I'd say, okay, like, I don't know, I'm like, are you reading Harry Potter? Like we're reading too in pre-K, I'm like, okay. And then I remember one teacher said like, you know, we ha- they have to know all of their shapes by kindergarten. I was like, okay. And she's like, they have to know what an oval is. I was like, okay. And I remember shutting my door. I was so annoyed with her, like dropping these subtle hints of like, oh, they have to know this. And then I remember during circle time, like over teaching oval. I'm like, repeat the oval, repeat the oval. Like everybody knew oval that they didn't know any other shape. And so when they left, they were ready. And I really felt this sense of protection for them because I didn't want them to have spent this whole year in this language rich community space where everybody was valued to then be potentially in a low reading group, right? Or in the back of the class or already having um, low expectations. Um, I I remember having a student with a physical disability um, from, uh, he's a Spanish speaking um, family. They were immigrants to the country and they did not bring that physical disability to my attention. They let his hair grow over his deformity. And when we noticed it, we had to get you know um, a school counselor that could speak Spanish and ask the family about the situation. They didn't. They didn't want to really. Um, you know, they didn't want to draw a lot of attention to it. But ultimately we were able to get that family some services and the student later went on to have a minor uh, reconstructive surgery that addressed his um, physical deformity 
um, but was not impacting his academics, but those were resources we could help families have access to. So, you know, you think about how families may show up in school now, right? Here's everything my kid needs and we want it right away. And some families won't mention something really important at all. So those are some of the things that stand out to me, how I had this sense of protection for them and I knew that they were ready and I wanted the next, their next teachers to see how bright and intelligent that they were. And that's one of the main um, threads that I see through all the podcasts that all the experts are saying, like we want teachers to realize that English learners are more than their English proficiency, right? To see them Absolutely. In a, right in an assets-based framework or assets-based perspective. Absolutely. Absolutely. And so, yeah, those are the, those are the stories that I always go back to. Um, and of course there are others in the earlier part of my career, I spent time, you know, teaching um, students ESL classes. And then I went on to serve as an instructional coach. I spent a short time as an assistant professor, realized pre-service teachers, mm, my heart was really more focused on um, district district challenges, um, although I do still teach adjunct, which is phenomenal. Um, and then I had the opportunity to work alongside school leaders at some uh, schools that had some challenges with their language learning populations. And so that's where And Justice for L grew out of. It's kind of like a like my field notes from the things that I was seeing and doing and experiencing working alongside those school leaders and their and their leadership teams. Well, let's go back to let's start actually talking about the book. The audience that you wrote this book is other uh, school leaders. So why write a book for school leaders? Yeah, so you know, that's so interesting. The next book I'm going to write is going to say if the title is going to be this this book is for blank and then you can just write your name in because I've gotten a lot of like <laughs> This is going to be a blank line, like a workbook. This book is for blank. Um, when people see, when educators see school leaders, this, I don't know why this happens, but interestingly enough, they assume that I don't mean teachers. And teachers are leaders in their, in their spaces. So when I, you know, for school, a leader's guide to creating and sustaining equitable schools whoever associates themselves with a leader, this book is for you. And so in talking to teachers, I want them to feel empowered, right? Like this isn't a conversation for certain people. Um, yes, my audience um, primarily are school leaders and leadership teams, but that includes EL teachers, teachers that teach um, content-based language learning, right? Like, so it really is for everyone. Um, but I framed it around the issues that I witness school leadership teams having the most challenges with. So I wanted to take those challenges and frame the work around it. Just name the thing, just name the thing. And so that's hopefully what I've attempted to do. So we're going to, besides name that thing, we're going to talk about all those things related to school leadership. And so teachers can be leaders because they can direct and change their instruction in a way, and also encourage colleagues to do the same thing. So that is leadership. Absolutely, absolutely. Thank you. I need to get that quote because I don't know why. They say, oh, this is for this group, right? Like they want me to confirm. And I said, no, not necessarily, right? And so um, I've you know, been able to share the work 
with more than just one educated group. So let's move to chapter one. Can you uh, talk to us about what school leaders need to know about supporting ELs and what's the urgency behind it? So, you know, in chapter one, I was trying to just say everything in chapter one, but then it just would have been a pamphlet. So I had to, you know, spread the, (laughs) spread the work out, but I really did try to say a lot of things in chapter one. And I think it was the excitement of having, you know, um, you know, being under contract with a, with a, you know, phenomenal publisher, uh, Corwin and knowing that this work was going to come out. Um, and I also wanted to keep it short enough that I could, you know, potentially hold the reader's attention because working alongside school leaders, it was very clear to me that they were busy They did not have a lot of time and we had to get to the work. We didn't have a lot of time to spend on the formalities and they would tell me, okay, Cooper, let's go. You know, I got 45 minutes. Here's what, here's where we left off during our last meeting. Here's what I want to show you. Like I would jump right into the work. So um, I remember at one point me suggesting different um, publications to some of the school leaders and they would tell me, I don't have time to read that. You tell me what it says. Just tell me what is, I don't have time to, um, you know, read those many chapters. Can you just tell me like, well, what are they talking about? And so I'd be sitting there, I can picture myself sitting on the other side of someone's desk, telling them about someone else's book. And then one school leader said, why don't you just write a book? And I was like, yeah, right. What? I'm telling you about, you just write the book and tell it to, and I thought, maybe that's what needs to happen. And so I um, just started writing and I didn't write in sequential order. I didn't write chapter one and two. I wrote the chapters and the order in which I was closest to the work and how it unfolded. And um, someone told me once that I had the book already. They said, you have so many stories. You have the whole book already. You just have to get it on paper. And so once I was able to kind of embrace that and accept that, that the stories were there, right? One time this happened, another time, can you believe someone said this? It was already there. And then I just had to to organize it and tell my story. So in chapter one, I'm doing a lot of previewing, um, kind of just talking about how the book is set up. Um, But one of my favorite features of the book is I have these, uh, what would you do scenarios where I try to take, you know, real situations that I've experienced or helped a school leader work through and and leave the reader with that situation without giving the answer away and and really just letting it hang out there as a way to get the reader comfortable with being uncomfortable, right? So every book we read, you know, may not leave us with this warm, fuzzy feeling. There's some things that we read that leave us puzzled or perplexed or still really grappling with the content. And that's exactly what I wanted to do because there are no quick answers. There are no quick, and there are implications either way. So when you say, what would you do? I would do this, I would do that. We only do it this way. Okay, there's implications either way. So what decisions can you live with knowing you are directly impacting a child's life? So, so that, that's chapter one, trying to give it all there and then set the stage. And um, I've been told 
one of the um, gems from, from chapter one are the eight questions. I call them simple questions with complex answers. There are eight questions for school leaderships teams that I ask. Um, most educators are only able to answer three to four of the eight questions, which is, which is a start because whatever questions they aren't able to answer, we use those to shape the work. Cool. How cool. So if you have, yeah, like you choose, like what are, what, how do you prioritize all of this? And so that's been really helpful for, for um, people as well. Can you read us the eight questions? How about I read you four of that. the eight and, and then they can buy the book? <laughs> yes. Speaking like well, a businesswoman. Yeah, so let me read you the first, and this is what, it's a simple question. I don't want anyone to overthink it, but this is a tough question. So the first question is, for a school leadership team, teacher, classroom teacher, whomever, how many students are identified as English learner? And when I say English learner, I'm specifically talking about the federal definition of an English learner, a student who's eligible for support. Um, the field is using more assets-based language of multilingual learner, um, which I am in total support of, but I'm still looking for students who are eligible for support, okay? So really being sure of who, which multilingual learner population are you talking about? So how many? And in some, uh, some other spaces, it may come out of, it may be framed like know your students, because I've seen I want to know, I need it to be quantifiable because school leadership teams are responsible for students and they have to quantify their progress. And so you would be surprised at how many educators do not necessarily know that number. So that's the first thing, right? And I'll hear things like, oh, we have a really big population. What's a big population, right? Oh, we have low incidence. What was the incidence and what made it low? Like I just, okay. So in relation to the rest of the school population, how many students are we talking about, right? Talking about 15 students, we're talking about 25%, we're talking about 88%, like, so number one. Also number two, which grade levels are your students in? So if this is a K to eight school, are the students, um, you know, in every single grade? Is this a new program where you're a K five, but you just have students enrolling from K two? Kind of like getting that idea, like this portrait, right, of your of your school community. Um, and then, what are their levels of English language proficiency? Um, because that's really going to start that question, or the answer to that question will start. Um, the conversation around program models and types of support and um, intentional dif differentiation, right? We're not differentiating for the sake of differentiating. So again, these are like pre prerequisite questions that will get us further into the work. Um, and then number four, and I'll stop here, how many, if any, students are duly identified? So meaning um, may have a learning challenge and or may be gifted and talented. Okay, and or may be experiencing homelessness. So in and of that, in and of the population, right, they're not monolithic. What are some other indicators that we might be watching for or also counting that student under a different student group? And if you want the other four, you're going to have to buy the book. <laughs>
But just, you know, for the listeners thinking about those four, right? Like what are those answers, right? Like you can kind of go through in your head and think, okay, like, well, this is the population we serve. Here are the grade levels that we, you know, offer in that learning space. Um, here are, here's how we define English language proficiency. I mean, that's different across all different contexts, right? So what language are we using to even talk about um, proficiency levels and what does proficiency mean? How do we measure that? What are we looking for? And then when we say duly identified, um, it could be learning English and whatever else. Right, right. It's, they're not monolithic. You're right. They're not just, mm-hmm. oh, English learners are just like this. Correct, right. correct, correct. So yeah, so most most um, most educators I work with can answer um, again three to four of the questions, and then whatever they are not able to answer, we use we use those to begin to shape the work. Okay, so now we want to prioritize this, or it looks like we need some more support around that. Right, right. It's like a formative assessment, like a like a preset, like a pretest before we get to the work. Absolutely, yes, absolutely. Instead of me coming in saying, "Here's what we need to do," absolutely not. That is totally not my approach at all. You're, it's a collaborative approach, but first we have to know what our partners know. Absolutely, absolutely. And if it's a right fit for what I provide too, right? And so sometimes I um, am contacted to maybe direct them to something else, right? So that happens too, which is, which is fine because it's most important that, that people are getting what they need. Right. Right. Time is of the essence. And as you know, professional learning is um, starting to take a little bit of a backseat now that for the most part, instruction has returned to face-to-face. And so it's not, we're having fewer opportunities to engage in virtual professional learning. You know, if we're moving back to face-to-face, then it has to really count. It has to be top-notch and meaningful. Right. Well, let's talk about program models. That's chapter two. What would you like readers to know about program models? So the analogy I use for chapter two, um, I talk about the federal guidance around, um, you know, what 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 is the expectation, right? So what has to be in place um, for students, and then I use this buffet analogy. So can you think of a time you've been to a buffet? Yes. Okay. So so we think about a buffet, and we all get our little plates and utensils and everything. Well, you can pick from whatever is on the buffet, right? And that's, you know, oftentimes what it's like for for districts and schools, right? Here's the federal guidance around what has to be in place for students. Um, Access to content area instruction is a civil rights issue, right? The work we do, this is framed around the civil rights. And so here's what you have to have, here are your choices. But I have seen, districts and schools continue to pick the same thing from the buffet. And then when we don't have student achievement results where we expect them to be, we're we're questioning things. Why are we not seeing growth? Why are students stagnant? Why are we having a difficult time getting students to move from here to there? What's happening at the secondary level? Well, I like to know what you're picking from the buffet. And you know you might have to diversify your approach. You uh, may have to have um, some fluidity. Is it responding to the students that you have? The English learners you had 15 years ago could be vastly different from the students you're serving now. What do those resources look like? You know, so I kind of have that conversation around. You know, you have a lot of autonomy, but if you don't even know 
what you can do and you're just doing what what's always been done then I, I'm just going to let that hang out there. <laughs> so chapter two is about program models. And could we define that, right? Like if we ask 20 different educators in your learning community, you know, what's happening in your school, what program models do you have in place? Oh, that is a loaded question. You should hear the responses we get. You should hear. And I actually, actually did that with a director once. We went around and asked, that was part of some of the work we were doing. We were asking educators to define the bilingual program in the district. And we heard all types of responses. It was eye-opening. And so essentially that program model was whatever the teacher that you were assigned to understood it to be. That's dangerous. That's dangerous. Speaking about that, sorry, I actually have to go back to what you said. We've always done it this way. I think that is the most dangerous thinking that a, that a school or a teacher can have because we've always done it this way. If I teach the way we've always done it when I was taught as a little kid, all of my students would be forced to speak only English now. Mm. And language is power. So when you say force, right, you're using very powerful language, but it's not necessarily, you know, that's not in a good way, right? You know, language is power, it should be empowering, right? You can't make anybody speak any language, right? right? They have to feel that that language is valuable and meaningful to them in their, their context. So um, when I said dangerous, it's because I did put a warning label on the book. Uh, in the beginning, it says, uh, you know, what this book is, what this book is not, how this book can be used. And I do, it says right here, warning, this book may be used to upset the status quo. This book may be used to challenge prior practices, systems, and structures. It can be used to inform individuals and learning communities who not only seek to deepen their understanding of EL needs and requirements, but who need to be prepared to do what is necessary. So that's the warning label that got printed. The other, what I wrote initially, the um, publishers asked me to tone it down, so I had to tone it down. But anyway, that, that's that's the that's the warning label that got, you know, remember remember we used to have the warning labels on CDs, right? So I felt like this needed a warning label because it's not just for a select few, and that's the problem. That so that I've you know that just is something I'm working at, you know, this iceberg of like. Just these people know and everybody doesn't. No, absolutely not. I mean, we talk about creating and sustaining schools, but to be quite honest with you, the majority of the school leadership teams that I have worked alongside, they've inherited those programs. They are, they are, they are hired to lead a school and whatever is in that school is what they are responsible for, whether they understand it or not. And so, you know, that that's my audience to say, okay, you're a principal or you're an assistant principal. What program models do you have? Can you define them? And do you understand the purpose of these program models? If not, let's 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 do that work together. Right. I think you're speaking to the second most dangerous phrase when I think about English learners. People will often say, Oh, those are your kids, not my kids. Right. And that happens a lot. And so thank you for talking about that. Let's move to talking about chapter three rubrics for teachers. 
Yeah, so in 2015, I uh, co-authored a book with Diane Stair-Fenner and Peter, Peter Kozik, um, and it was about a, a teacher evaluation, equitable teacher evaluation for um, English learners and students with disabilities. And so it had been five years since that book was published. And I wanted chapter three um, to just really synthesize what I had experienced in the five years, which was essentially conversations beyond the rubric. And that's the title of chapter three, because it, the conversations I've had um, were really after boxes were checked or domains were checked off and, you know, ratings were all, you know, tabulated. It was the conversations that really resonated um, with me and other people who had, you know, when you say teacher evaluation, I mean, you get feelings of, you know, anxiety and stress and um, judgment, right? It's not, a, it's not a, it doesn't invoke a lot of happy feelings for, for most educators. Teacher evaluation is not a fun topic. So I wanted to um, remove that and talk about the conversation, which is a two-way experience, right? And making sure that both sides feel um, uh, heard and validated and part of the process. So not one person coming in with a clipboard rating things um, but instead, it was an experience and how do we as educators talk about um, what we're doing for students. How do we host that conversation, moving from the rubric to conversation about how do we serve English learners? Sure. I mean, I think it's definitely going to start with just trust, right? And, and like there's got to be a mutual respect for each person's role. There has to be some trust there. Um, that relationship is really going to, to frame out the rest of the experience. And I say beyond the rubric for a reason, because districts change teacher evaluation systems. They may change rubrics. They may adopt systems. Some places it's very clear from the top down, everyone is using this. Other places, they have autonomy to use something different. So it could be different across the district. So, you know, regardless of what um, is mandated or selected uh, to be used, I want the conversation to, to be um, centered around uplifting the linguistic diversity within that learning community. That is first and foremost. Then we can talk about how I have students situated, or then we can talk about this particular assignment and why I'm differentiating this way or here's the supports I have in place for these students only, or if I'm working with a co-teacher, here's why this person takes this group and does this. But I first have to know who's in your classroom. So that's the beyond the rubric part. Right. It all goes back to your first question of one of those eights. Who's in your class? Who do you have? Who's in your classroom? That's right. right. Yeah. Let's move to chapter four, which is about job embedded professional learning. Focus on ELs. Oh, I think you can tell me about chapter four. You can tell me about professional learning and and how we have to do it ourselves sometime. I mean, I've, I've had, I remember sitting in as a teacher, as an EL teacher, I remember sitting in our district, you know, prescribed professional learning sessions. And I remember sitting there watching the session, you know, listening to the speaker and in my head, I was like unpacking it for my students. So there's that do it yourself, right? Like, yes, but, 
<laughs> it's almost like I had to like life hack the PD or something because I'm like, okay, I see where you're going with this, but this is who I have in my class. And this, this is how I'll have to help my students have access to this and make meaning. So um, essentially for, for chapter four, it's making sure that professional learning efforts are aligned and I can't tell you, it, it, you know, we have to stop with the pop-up PD. We have to stop with the one and done. We have to stop with the, but I just have, you know, this much reserved and I have to have these funds spent by this date. What can we do, right? Like if it's a line and job embedded, then we won't get to those points and say, oh my goodness, now what can we do? It would have already been discussed ahead of time. Um, I also, you know, want to mention that I do understand um that this um planning for professional learning sometimes can feel like we're keeping up with a moving target because things are planned and approved so far in advance right so now we're having that conversation already around what we're going to do for the next school year that sometimes it feels like we're you know we're planning ahead but then in real time it leaves very little room for adjustments or revisions that are needed for the students we serve. So let me give let me let me give you just a for instance. Let's say that a school community has a uh, professional learning series in place. We're going to focus on differentiation uh, in the content areas. Okay, let's say that's what we're going to do. But over the summer, this learning community has um, uh, an increase in. Um, refugee students who are recently resettled into that community. Well, we're talking about students with um, perhaps limited formal uh, instruction. They may or may not be literate in their, in their home language. And so now the professional learning needs aren't addressing that student population at all, right? Because we're talking about the students who have already been here and who have made it to 10th grade and they've been our, part of our learning community. And we, we're not talking about a student that has um, significant gaps in their education, uh, low literacy, right? Um, or a student who may come in with being biliterate. As a teacher, are you prepared to capitalize on that? What if the student does come in with some um, uh, linguistic strengths in their native language? Do you know how to take advantage of that? That in and of itself is a whole nother professional learning series. So that's where I'm seeing the, the, um, the need for more alignment. But I do understand that that's challenging when you're doing and planning and getting approvals so far in advance. Yeah, professional learning is really hard to plan that way. I also think, uh, I remember when we spoke about six months ago, like a pre-interview for this podcast, I was talking about yeah. how it's, we wrote this book Dr. Carol Salva and Dr. Katie Tapu, we wrote this book together because we knew that there are districts out there where they're not providing the professional learning for language specialists. And you were like, no, 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 no. I'm gonna push back against that. And I was like, oh yes, please do. So do you wanna talk about that? It was a respectful pushback. Let me just, let me just, let me just preface that. And I think what I'm pushing for is if, if and when we are creating space and time to have professional learning for people who are, you know, serving in these, um, you know, leadership capacities and maybe working across several schools or regions, I have I've seen 
one of the disconnected pieces that we then do not provide space and a platform for them to actually get the work going and embedded. Okay. If I hear from one more person, are you going to share your PowerPoint? No. Okay. I hope you're laughing with me and not at me. Okay. So, so yes, let's do all the PD, just get the PowerPoint. And then we're, you know, tell me what the person said. And I'm thinking, no, 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 no. Where in this whole plan is there now space and time for the people that you have just invested in to get the work going or to continue to work or share the work or whatever the outcome is versus they did a thing over here. Okay, check. And it's not reaching the community that it was meant to reach. That's why it's so important to have consistent job and better professional learning, not just pop up. It's not just, oh, we did it. See, we're, we're now we're just reporting back to the state to say, no, no, we had the speaker come in. Oh, we, we, we did that equity thing. Check. No. Yes. Yeah. So that was my pushback to say, I, 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 I've seen that I've been in roles when I, when I would question, I'd say, oh, so you've done this for three years in a row with this group of Okay, so what's the holdup then? You've had three years of this learning with this one or two cohorts of educators, but now we're not helping them. Or they'll say, oh, well, we had 30 minutes at the staff meeting, right? Like it's that kind of thing. So I'd like to see us spend some more, more time creating space for, for the people and the initiatives that we've already invested in. Right, right. I like to say, uh, like analogy, uh, I say, um, in the teaching world, we often say, what you care about, you assess. And Absolutely. Think, oh, yes. Well, yeah. You know where I'm going. And I'm saying, like, yes. what we care about, we provide the professional learning for. Correct. Right? Correct. It's kind of like when we sow a seed, we don't just, like, walk away. We need to tend to it. We need to water it over time. As it sprouts, we need to put things that support it around it. Right? Not just good luck. Correct. Correct. And I, and participants have told me that too. Participants have said, yes, we, we, we do this and it is, it is so great. It's, I really enjoy it. And I'm glad we're doing this work, but I can't get this group of people to listen in, or I'm not able to share this out, or I don't have, you know, the authority to do this. And, and so I think that that's, that's going to continue to, um, that's going to serve as a barrier. So Yes to, to sowing the seed, but you got to water it. And then you might have to change that soil and get it in a bigger pot. It's going to outgrow. The, have you ever seen the roots that get all crunkled up? Because they have to get in a bigger pot. All right, that's going to be my next name of the next chapter. You need to get in a bigger pot. <laughs> because, yeah, we've reached capacity over here. We've reached capacity. So. That is good. <laughs> Let's talk about your last chapter then. Let's talk about family engagement. Yeah. So can I be quite honest with you? Do we have room for honesty on this podcast? Please. please. <laughs> so interestingly enough, this was the chapter I did not want to write. That and I said. Honesty there. Right. And I said, and here's why. Because in my role as a consultant, the families were the population that I was really able to work the least amount with, right? So they were there, 
but I, I didn't get to see as many families, right? Because when are, when are family things happening? After school hours, maybe before school. So I wouldn't be, I would hear about this experience with families, but I, it wasn't close enough to me. So I really didn't feel um, like I had, you know, enough authority, if you will, to even be writing. But um, the universe has a way of bringing things to you and bringing people to you that can help you. And um, I started collecting little mini experiences. So for example, there is um, um, a, 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 a situation in the chapter, everything in the book really happened to someone. So I never had to make anything up. And if, you, if you're in the book, you'll know what you all names and places have been changed to protect the innocent, but it's very clear, right? And so um, partnering with parents, I was really um, adamant about using the word partnering, right? Partnering, I wanted there to be this, this equality piece here with this chapter. And I wanted us to move beyond the bring a dish from your culture, okay? Um, because there are plenty of publications that talk about the importance of that, but I wanted us to stay away from food, um, because, you know, in some cultures, food is sacred and every meal we have is not meant to be, you know, on a PTA table in, in the, in the gymnasium because it's, you know, bring a dish from your culture night with all due respect. Right. So I wanted to stay away from that. And I instead wanted to give voice to experiences that school leaders that I had been working alongside were experiences, experiencing as it related to the families they serve. So, um, you know, helping parents really understand language assessments, you know, that kept coming up. That was a theme, right? We have all of these assessments. Parents understand that exams and tests are part of school. But what, what does that mean for my child who's learning this language as a new language in school? So I wanted to make sure that there was space uh, for that. Um, also, um, even connecting families with community services or just community opportunities, if you will, okay? And, and how parents prefer to be communicated with. This is the age of technology, right? So do you want a phone call? Do you want a text message? Do you want a WhatsApp, right? So, you know, heaven forbid you want an email, right? That's, that's going to be archaic soon. But, but still, even having conversations around how do you communicate and, you know, the, the federal mandate says you have to communicate with families in a language they understand. Okay, well, what does that look like in real life and in real time? So that's going back to knowing the students, right? And under knowing the students, I guess question 1A would be what languages are represented in your school community? So if we have, let's say, Spanish and Arabic and Haitian Creole, what do our translation and interpretation services look like? in light of these being the languages that we're serving. So I wanted to kind of, you know, really keep it at, here's what a school leader, here are some situations that school leaders may encounter and here's how they handled it. So um, communicating with parents, their preferences, what that looks like, what languages are represented in a school, and then kind of this school talk, right? Like, there's one district that works with making sure linguistically diverse families understand the school calendar. Like what is a teacher work day? I thought teachers worked every day, right? So like when that's marked off on the calendar, what does that mean? 
If there's an early release day, what does that mean, right? If that, you know, all of these areas that education ease, right? This language that we speak as educators and acronyms, is that comprehensible to families? And if it's not, what's your responsibility to make sure it is? So we had some had some talk around that. And I have examples um, in, in the chapter where I showed um, a school calendar from New York State. The top is in English and on the bottom, um, just beneath it, it's, it's in Haitian Creole, the same dates. Yes. So it was just an example from that New York State website that I was able to pull. Um, and so then I asked schools and districts, could a family go onto the district website and select their language? Is that available? And if not, if that toggle is not there, how can they get this information in a language they can understand? So, um, and then I gave a scenario about um, a student who did not um, have the arrangements for early release and the school bus ended up bringing the student back to the school and because the family was experiencing homelessness, it was difficult to get in touch with um, a parent who could give permission to have an alternate arrangement for the child. Ultimately, the child was at school until after six o'clock at night. So it started out as right something that was supposed to be early release. It ended up being quite a long day, not only for this, you know, for this, for the student, but everyone else who was involved. And so imagine the anxiety of feeling like, why is this day different when it was time to go home? So I had, you know, um, you know, looking at the school calendar and the importance. And I also talked a little bit about bullying um, and, and how um, with, with all of the strife happening in real time that our students are not exempt from experiencing any kind of ism, right? Any kind of othering of them, whether it's racial, whether it's religious, whether it's uh, language and what do their parents do, right? Does your district have an anti-bullying policy and procedure? And is that information available um, for, for for linguistically diverse families to have access to. Um, so yeah, so, so this chapter ended up being one um, I was really pleased with um, because we didn't talk about bringing a dish from your culture. We were talking about some other, some other things. And last but not least, one of my other favorite pieces for chapter five was the situation in chapter one. I waited until chapter five to tell readers what ended up happening with that student. And readers are gonna yeah. to have to uh, get the book to find out. Right, right. So now everybody flips to the back to read, you know what I mean? Like they'll read this and they go right to, but, but still, I remember as a child that I had books where you could choose your ending and you could go to different pages. And so that was my attempt at creating this. I mean, why tell them everything that happened to this to this child, I wanted them to kind of follow this experience all the way through. And then finally, at the end of chapter five, I tell them what happened to the student. And, you know, they may not agree. They may not agree. It was a program model scenario. And it's um, not looking for agreement as much as I'm looking for us to think critically about the choices we, you know, that parents have. What if our uh, beliefs are different from what parents have, you know, who do we, you know, do we honor parent choice and um, all of the school experience. So 
Um, yeah, that, that's a big takeaway for chapter five is that I hope to talk about some things um, that aren't necessarily included in other books that are talking about working with families. Well, let's end this talk about injustice for ELs with my three questions that I end. It's very quick. It's called traffic light teaching. It's what would you tell teachers to stop doing, start doing, and keep doing uh, in terms of working with ELs? So red light, yellow light, and green light. I need to stop. I need for educators just to stop making excuses. Whatever excuse that is, we can control, we have the most control, I should say, during the six and a half, seven hours that the student is with us. So if that is in your immediate control, what are you doing that's making a positive impact in this child's academic journey? That's it, start with the excuses. Um, and and, and that just, I'm just gonna just stop right there. Whatever those excuses are, here's what's in your control. And when you are with that student, what are you doing? Um, and I'd like them to start, um, I guess, owning and being part of their own professional learning journey. Even the most experienced educators have something that they can learn. I'm a lifelong learner. I'm taking a, a, a course right now. Um, and, you know, I struggle. There's like short open response questions. And I'm like, oh, okay, I got to, oh, let me think about that. Wait, I got to, oh, you know what I mean? So like, but I, there's something about it that puts me, it keeps me in the seat of being the learner. And I'm there like, oh, I spelled that word wrong. I'm going back to lead and trying to fix my response. You know what I mean? Like, what? And I have a deadline. I have to do modules. Like it is real, but I'm like, I sign myself up for this. So, you know, no one said I had to do it. Like, so start taking, you know, charge of your own professional learning journey. Yes, you may have some things that you, that you are, you know, required to do as part of your role and you may have professional learning credits, of, but what do you like to do, right? Is there a hobby that you'd like to start taking up? Is there, you know, is there a skill that you want to learn or get better at? And I think that as we engage as teachers, we become better teachers if we if we do not forget what it's like to be the learner. So when I'm working with groups of educators, I'll ask how many of you are learning something new and what is that? Whatever that might be, you know, people have all kinds of really great hobbies and because I want to acknowledge that too, right? There, there are multiple aspects to our identity. So who are you as a learner? Um, and keep, okay, so keep, this one is easy. Keep moving the work forward, right? Like this is a civil rights issue. Um, when I was a, a young child, I had the lead role in the school play as Rosa Parks. And so that has never left me. It was a super important role. I remember, you know, practicing in school, my mother being so proud. Doesn't matter what I go on to do if I publish something, doesn't matter. I was Rosa Parks in the school play. So you know, keep, keep moving the work forward. No venue is too small, whatever your context, if that's your sphere of influence, do it. Um, because I don't, I don't want people to, to think it has to be a certain magnitude to have impact. That's not true. You know, here I am, oh, here I am talking to you over 20 years ago, 
about those students in that class and me teaching them oval, right? Like that was my sphere of influence, but that has stayed with me. So continue to, you know, keep, keep moving the work forward and enjoy what you do because we spend a lot of time at work. If you don't like what you do, pick a different grade level. I'm telling you. And don't get, don't get uh, sidetracked by, don't get enticed by the, the napping part. No, nap time is, it's just, it's, I'm telling you, that was the red herring. It was there just to fool me. It was there just to fool me. <laughs> it was a blessing in disguise because we are now reaping that blessing. Thank you. Thank you so much. I would, I couldn't agree with you more. And that's why that story stays with me. I was not someone who had the opportunity to travel internationally. I was not someone who had the opportunity to teach internationally. You know, all those things came much, much, much later in my career. And that's why I wanted to acknowledge the work that people are doing every day in classrooms right now um, that may have not had as many opportunities to, to do things outside of their zip code, but by all means, it's just as impactful as someone who has. Who has. Well, I know that before we started recording, you said someone praised you for being very similar to Dr. Goldie Muhammad, and I would say, I'm gonna to top that one. You are the Rosa Park for our field. Oh my goodness, thank you so much. That means a lot to me, thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you for leading the march and pushing the work forward. Before we recap this episode, I have a favor and an invitation. My favor is to ask you to please review this podcast if you found it valuable so that teachers like you become inspired and informed in their advocacy work. My invitation is for you to enroll in my scaffolding learning or teacher collaboration courses. I've taken the principles that I've learned from experts in the field. I've applied them to my classes. I kept the things that worked and I'm sharing all of them in these courses. I hope you consider enrolling. Now onto our recap. I would recommend getting this book just for the first chapter alone. Dr. Ayana Cooper will explain why our work needs to move beyond strategies and to addressing the injustices that children of color experience. It will remind your spirit that to move the work forward, we must ensure that there's justice for ELs. Justice is in our hands as school leaders because we are school teachers. Now go lead. Thank you for listening. I'll see you soon. Be safe and be rooted in peace. It's your turn to play Traffic Light Teaching. Tweet at me either your red, yellow, or green light from this particular episode.